We've got a potential buyout, a new partner for PayPal, and a strong report from an iconic brand. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me today, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's start with Big Red, shall we? Coca-Cola's third quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. They raised full-year guidance. And I was reminded of Pepsi's latest quarter when we when we saw these results. I thought, yep, kind of like Pepsi. And it, I don't want to say they always move in tandem, because they don't. And lately, Pepsi's had a better run as a business. But Coca-Cola's had a nice run of late. And just like Pepsi demonstrated with their latest quarter, Jason, Coca-Cola's got some pricing power, and they are executing with it. I'm glad you said that because that is one of the one of the primary keys to their to their success. Um, you know, one thing. I mean, one thing you know is when you read through this company's earnings call. I mean, this is truly just a global behemoth with a large presence virtually everywhere around the world. And basically, two thirds of revenue and operating profit comes from outside of North America. So, you know, it's always nice to see that kind of a business because they can they can exploit strength and shore up areas of weakness there. Um, but all things said, it, it was. It was a really strong, uh, strong quarter for them. So much so that they they see such a positive outlook for the rest of the year. They raise guidance, um, and if you look at just the growth for the quarter, organic revenue grew sixteen percent. Unit cases grew four percent. They they did see some some pressure on on gross margin, which was down 190 basis points from the year ago, and I mean a lot of that coming from currency headwinds driven by the the greater macroeconomic picture and, and, and certainly some inflationary concerns as well. But but they do have the ability ultimately to 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 exercise a little pricing power in the, in that business model, um, and so ultimately you saw earnings per share 69 cents uh, grew seven percent from a year ago. Um, again, getting back to their their the way they see the rest of the year shake, uh, shaking out. They raise guidance for the full year. They expect uh, organic revenue growth of fourteen to fifteen percent, and earnings per share growth of, of fifteen to sixteen percent. Um, and ultimately, you know, you look at at what this business deals with in, in the face of challenges as far as inflation goes. They continue to see healthy demand, and, and that's showing up both in in growth in in value and volume. Which I think really just speaks to how strong of a business this really is, even even in the difficult times. Um, I, I will say, you know, you mentioned Pepsi, and, and you have to be fair here. Looking back over the last five years, I mean, wow, it, it is really impressive to see how Pepsi has outperformed. I mean, the five-year total return: Coca-Cola forty-eight point eight percent, but Pepsi eighty-six point three percent. So, so again. For a long time, we've spoken about the strength of Coca-Cola's business model. That hasn't really changed. I feel like this is a bit of a testament to how how much better Pepsi's quarter actually was than than Coca-Cola's. No, that's true, and it and it builds off of a series of quarters that have been stronger than Coke's. But you know, you touched on something, and I'm wondering if this is going to be something for us to watch as earnings season continues to unfold. This idea of I just think of it as. Um, 
I, I think we might see some separation between the grown-ups and the kids, because we know we're going to hear about currency headwinds. We know we're going to hear about the strong dollar. And it is the stronger, more mature businesses, like Coca-Cola in this case, that can actually deal with that and put themselves in a little bit better position. They've got a little bit more pricing power. They're able to absorb the hit on the gross margin a little bit better. I just think we're going to continue to see this. I think that's a very reasonable point of view. I mean, this is a challenging time for everyone, but as we say it uh, so often, I mean, it's it's these stretches where oftentimes you see the leaders really emerge even stronger than before and being so well diversified across so many different lines across so many different geographies and having such a strong brand i mean it really does put coca-cola in a tremendous position to keep on succeeding for years to come and again you need to understand why you would own this stock in the first place right you're not buying this stock so that it doubles over the course of the next year or two years right this this is a more defensive defensive play no doubt about it but but i Think that that that's 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 really the key to it. You understand why you'd own this stock in in the first place, and if you feel like you need that stability, that income generating presence in your portfolio, I mean, yeah, it's not going to light the world on fire, but it's a tremendous brand with a lot of power around the entire world. So it's it's always one to keep in in mind. And for anyone who's wondering what we mean when we talk about stocks being a defensive play, it means that in a year like 2022, when the stock market, the overall market is down 20%, Coca-Cola is flat. That's what it means. It means year to date, it's outperforming the overall market by 20 percentage points. And I know, you know, you could sit there and, and, and take sort of the, the shorter term view and be like, oh, oh, that's just what that one little stretch of time. But the fact of the matter is, it does help you sleep better at night. And it basically, it ultimately, it helps you justify owning those other growthy style investments, right? It gives you the comfort, right? The confidence. To continue holding those stocks that you need to allow a little bit more time to play out, or, or, or are dealing with the challenges that so many of those companies are dealing with today. Shares of PayPal are up seven percent today after Amazon announced it's adding Venmo as a payment option at checkout. Venmo is owned by PayPal, and we've seen this from other businesses like Shopify and Lululemon that have offered Venmo as a payment option. Amazon, though, that is a, that is a nice win for PayPal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely. I think this is a bigger deal for PayPal than for Amazon, but it, it's definitely a win for both. Um, I mean, Venmo has grown considerably through the years. It's closing in on 90 million active accounts now. Uh, going to do something in the neighborhood, I think, of around 250 billion dollars in total payment volume this year. Um, so, so it moves a lot of money across that network, and and I mean this is this is right in line with the the digital wallet and checkout focus that management has sort of recentered around um, recently, right? We we saw PayPal kind of get a little bit too far outside of their circle of competence, so to speak. They were trying to do too many things and weren't really doing many of them very well. Um, and so you kind of pull back on that, stay in your lane a little bit, focus on the properties that are really succeeding for you. That is PayPal, that is Braintree, that is Venmo. Um, this is, you know, I think this is something that ultimately could play out very well, particularly for the younger generation of shoppers, right? The, the shoppers that really have grown up using Venmo so often. 
you link that thing up to your to your Amazon account. I mean, a lot of people have subscriptions to to, to certain things that they purchase from Amazon. It, it's definitely a big opportunity to boost that total payment volume going through the Venmo network, uh, which which ultimately would be a very good thing for PayPal. The stock of the day is MedPace Holdings. Shares up 36% after the latest earnings report. And I mention this only because two weeks ago on this show, Jim Gillies talked about MedPace Holdings as being the stock he was going to be watching this earnings season because management had been buying the stock and basically waving a big flag, signaling that they thought there was great value to be had. And uh, kudos to our friend Jim Gillies. That's all. We're not going to talk about this. I just mentioned it. <laughs> Uh, on Jim's behalf, and uh, you know, hopefully, some of the folks who were listening two weeks ago uh, heard what Jim had to say and took advantage of that. So this isn't quite the stock of the day, but shares of Weber Grill are up 33 percent because BDT Capital Partners, which uh, I was today years old when I had learned about the, their existence, BDT <laughs> Capital is the largest shareholder of Weber, and they've made an acquisition offer for the company. Reminding listeners that this is a company that went public at 14, and uh, the buyout offer is six dollars twenty-five cents a share. So it is it has been a rough, short public life for Weber Grill and its shareholders. But uh, you know, maybe maybe this is how it's supposed to end. It felt like it had to end this way. I mean, it. You know, we we've talked about these these businesses before, your Webers and Traegers of the world that. Make really great products, um, but don't necessarily translate into great investments because the products they make. I mean, you're hanging on to them for a really long time. I mean, you buy a good Traeger or a good Weber grill and you take care of it. I mean, you can own that thing for 15 to 20 years. And so then, how else are they making money? Now, I give give all of them full credit. They're trying to figure out how to make additional money, right? Whether it's selling the charcoal or the wood pellets or spice rubs or or even meal kits, right? But you know that that's that that's also not really the highest margin business. Sure, it generates some repeat sales, but uh, ultimately, I don't know that it always translates necessarily into the best investment. I mean, you could kind of see the writing on the wall for this one from the very beginning, too, right? Because I mean, they raised two hundred fifty million dollars in the IPO, and that was less than half of what they were really hoping to raise. I think kind of investors you know take that take that. Uh, as as a sign, I mean that 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 kind of gives you an idea. Maybe the enthusiasm, the expectations, and in in speaking of expectations, I mean it's it's a business that earlier in in the year, right? Earlier this year, the very first quarter, I think in February, they were guiding for around seven percent uh, revenue growth uh, for this this year. Fast forward to August, I mean the, the, the macroeconomic conditions have worsened. They withdraw all guidance, so you really have no. Idea, or at least no faith that management really knew where the financials were headed for the near term, at least with this business. I mean, they they keyed in, I think, on on some important strategic imperatives. Right? They were talking about new growth products, things like subscriptions, things like accessories and in, in charcoal and wood pellet, whatever it may be, rubs, meal kits. Um, Accelerating the e-commerce growth and and the DTRG, and for those of you who don't know DTRG, that's direct to Ron Gross. Ron Gross <laughs> himself just got a new Weber grill. And boy, is that thing spanking new! But that was a big part of the business, right? That actually grew twelve percent. That 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 e-commerce side of the business, the direct to consumer, ultimately expanding the real the retail base, uh, investing more in emerging markets, a continued focus on operational efficiency. So maybe uh, we will see the 
acquirer here, uh, continue to focus on those strategical imperatives, uh, strategic imperatives in order to, uh, to to get this business kind of going back in the right direction. But but again, it does feel like it's going to have to come a lot from sort of cutting the fat and really maximizing efficiencies uh, because you just you just aren't buying a new grill every couple of years. Yes, although as you mentioned, our our friend and colleague Ron Gross recently bought a Weber grill, shared on Slack uh, a photo of the grill set up, and we're like, ah, that, look, that looks great. And he just very quickly added, like, oh no no no, I didn't I didn't put this together myself. I you know <laughs> that's a service that you can pay for delivery and and uh, you know assembly and that sort of thing. It's like okay, yeah yeah. Well, the, the, the good news is he opened the invitation to us on the channel. He's gonna have us over for dinner, and it's right. like, I cannot wait because hey. Listen, it sounds like he knows what he's doing on a Weber. So, I, Ron, I'm looking forward, looking forward to getting over there. Jason Moser, great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Yes, sir. Thank you. Tis the season for monsters, ghosts, and superstitions. Wouldn't it be great if you could sacrifice just one stock in your portfolio by throwing it into a volcano, thereby saving the rest of your stocks? Allison Southwick and Robert Brokamp take a closer look at stock market superstitions and which ones may have some validity. Superstitions are a way for humans to create some sense of order or control over the randomness of life. Did something unlucky or irrational happen? It must be because of the whims of a supernatural power or force, like fate or just, you know, cats. But don't worry, because even if it doesn't make sense, it makes sense because you knew better than to open that umbrella indoors, you knucklehead. So, though we like to think of the stock market as being rational with our Bloomberg terminals and charts and algorithms and supply and demand and sellers and buyers, Wall Street is also a bit superstitious. So, today we're going to see which superstitions in the stock market are actually worth believing. After all, the funny thing about the stock market is that if enough people believe the same thing and act accordingly, then it can come true. So, I'm going to name the superstition, and Bro is going to let us know if there's anything behind it. All right, let's start off with a sign of our times October. If you've heard the phrase sell in May and stay away, you were maybe wondering when it's safe to come back. And the answer is, after October is done sowing chaos in the markets. The Panic of 1907, the Crash of 1929, and Black Monday in 87 all came in October. Across the pond, apparently they say sell in May and buy on St. Ledger's Day, which is a horse race in September, but that means you'd be buying back into the market just before October's reckoning. So, I don't know, bro, what do you think? Well, let's start with that whole sell in May thing. So, if you break up the historical returns of the stock market by month, you can see there's actually a little bit something to that. So, you could rank the months according to the likelihood that the market made money and also just by the actual average returns of that month. And according to your Denny research, the months between that May October period do tend to be toward the bottom, with the exception of July, which actually has the highest average return. And there's a reason why October has a particularly bad reputation because if you look at five of the 10 worst one day drops for the Dow, they've come in October. However, it's not the worst performing month. That honor belongs to September, which historically has posted a negative return 55% of the time. It's making it actually the only month that is more likely to lose money, and the average return is just uh, a negative 1.1%. Um, also, October has something else going for it. According to Charlie Bellello of Compound Capital Advisors, in past bear markets, the S&P 500 has bottomed in October more than any other month. 
Now, the low of this current bear market was on October 13th, so let's hope October comes through for us again. So, uh, for each of these superstitions, I'm going to give it a rating of one to five broken mirrors. More broken mirrors means it's more valid. So, for sell in May and go away, I'm going to give it two out of five broken mirrors because the returns are historically lower, but you still make money and it's not consistent enough for you to really trade on it. But as for October, I'm going to give it four broken mirrors because it generally is a below average month, but also historically kind of an interesting month. And as a big fan of Halloween, I love the idea of the market being a little spookier in October, or at least maybe a little bit more dramatic. All right. Next, we're going to look at the moon and all that. You've heard of bear markets and bull markets, but what about a werewolf market? If you can blame other strokes of bad luck or otherwise erratic behavior on a full moon, then why not the stock market? A number of studies have actually looked into the validity of investing based on the moon, and two back in the aughts agreed that during the 15 days of the lunar month closest to the new moon, so starting seven days before it and ending seven days after, the stock market's average returns are higher than those of the other half of the moon. Better by as much as 10% a year if you follow the strategy like the faithful moon goddess worshiper you are. Bro, what do you think? Well, what's interesting about these studies is that they look not just at the US stock market, but they found that this happens in other markets as well. In fact, one study found that it's stronger outside the US. Uh, and as you pointed out, this better performance has to do with the time around the new moon, which is you know when the moon is between the sun and the earth, a condition known as syzygy. So there's your new word for the day. It's the opposite of the full moon, which according to these studies is a worse time to be investing. Uh, and believe it or not, there are actual trading strategies and even websites devoted to trying to profit from this. So the proponents argue that studies clearly show that people are generally at their worst during the times around the full moons. You see higher rates of insomnia, depression, heart attacks, even homicide. Um, some studies have found that this happens in other animals besides humans. Um, I will say that there are plenty of other studies that kind of debunk these theories, but we definitely know that the moon affects bodies of water, and you know we humans are about sixty percent liquid. So you know why wouldn't the lunar phases affect us in our investing? At least that's what thinking is behind this strategy. So what's my final rating? Well, my first inclination would be to just give it one of five broken mirrors. But the studies are actually pretty compelling. Plus, you know we're less than a week from Halloween. So I'm going to give it three broken mirrors just to be in the spirit of the season. All right, on to the next one. And we've all heard of it. As with all noble sports ball traditions, an octopus in a Cincinnati aquarium selects who will win the Super Bowl. And if it's an AFC team, then we will suffer a bear market in the coming year. And if it's an NFC team, we'll have four more weeks of Tom Brady. Wait, maybe I have that wrong. Okay, take out the stuff about Octopi and Tom Brady. And basically, if AFC wins, market go down. If NFC wins, market go up. The theory was coined in the late 1970s by a New York Times sports reporter named Leonard Coppett. So, bro, what do you think? Well, so first of all, as a lifelong Tampa Bay Bucks fan, I'm guessing that Tom Brady wishes that Octopus or whatever coaxed him out of retirement had done something different because the season isn't going very well for us. But as for the superstition, uh, you're right, Allison, that the current version says that the market will go up a year after an NFC win. But when Leonard Coppett identified this trend in 1978, he wrote that the market would go up if a team from the original NFL won and would go down when a team from the original AFL won. And to understand why this matters, we kind of have to review a little bit of football history. So back in the early 60s, there were two leagues, the NFL and the AFL, and they didn't compete against each other, though they did compete for fans and players. Then in 1966, they decided to gradually merge. At first, they played separate schedules, but they agreed to play in what they called the annual AFL-NFL World Championship game, which eventually, thankfully, became known as the Super Bowl. Uh, then in 1970, they fully merged under one name, the NFL, and created the NFC and the AFC. But 
to make an equal number of teams in each conference, three teams in the original NFL had to move over to the AFC, the Steelers, the Colts, and the Browns. This is important because according to Mr. Coppett's version of the Super Bowl indicator, when any of those three teams win, the market is supposed to do well, even though they're now part of the AFC. So now when Coppett wrote about this indicator, it had a 12 for 12 success rate, which you know is pretty remarkable. How has it done since then? Uh, well, it has had a success rate of 75%, which is still pretty good, but it's not done very well recently. It was on a six-year losing streak until 2021, when the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Tom Brady beat the Chiefs, the Bucs are an NFC team, and the market did indeed do well that year. But this year will likely be another loser for the indicator. The Rams won earlier this year, another NFC team, but right now the S&P 500 is down 20%. But you know, who knows? Maybe things will turn around. Anyways, you may wonder what Leonard Coppett thinks of the indicator he created. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2003. But Jason Zweig of the Wall Street Journal did interview him a couple of years before his death. And here's what Coppett said, quote, It's a joke. I meant the whole thing as a satire on the fallibility of human statistical reasoning. It's too stupid to believe. Uh, and of course, I agree. There's absolutely no reason for the outcome of a single game to determine the performance of the stock market. And for that reason, I give it one out of five broken mirrors. All right, next we're going to look at the maiden in the volcano. For the maiden in the volcano superstition, we'll turn to Josh Brown, aka the reform broker. According to Brown, in times of market turmoil or in the midst of a heavy sell off, many portfolio managers and investors believe that they have to blow out one position to appease the market gods, tossing a maiden into the volcano so that the island will be spared the wrath. Such thinking is as primitive as you get, noted Brown, but it feels good when it works. And if this happens once or twice, logic aside, you'll swear on it. Yeah, this was a new one to me. And I guess the idea is that generally you shouldn't sell during a market downturn because then you won't benefit when the market rebounds. But if you sell just a little, that'll appease the stock gods and they'll turn the market around. And I think you get bonus points if it's one of your favorite stocks. And I think it sort of gets to how we anthropomorphize the market, thinking that it's a singular living entity with its own free will, when in reality, it's the culmination of millions of investing decisions made by millions of people every day. So, as you might expect, I don't think there's much to it, so I give it one broken mirror. However, in the 2009 article in which Josh Brown talked about this, he mentioned another superstition, which he called the man in the box, and he explained it like this. Quote, I just know that as soon as I put my position on an XYZ, the man in the box will know it and the whole market's going to drop like a rock. And I think many of us have felt this way, right? We buy a stock and it immediately drops, or we sell a stock and it takes off, or we at least fear this will happen. So I give that one three broken mirrors, not because I think it's true, but because it's probably a pretty common superstition. I know I've felt this way at times. All right. And our last superstition we're going to look at is the presidential election cycle theory. Now, you might be thinking the superstition here is that when insert political party you ascribe to is in the White House, the stock market goes up. And when insert political party you oppose holds the presidency, the market goes down. But actually, this party agnostic superstition says the stock market in the U.S. performs weakest in the first year or two of a president's term and then recovers peaking in the third year before falling in the last year of the presidential term. And then the cycle begins again. Bro, what do you think? Well, like many of these beliefs, there's actually some data behind it. Historically, the market does perform best during the third year of a president's term. And the fourth year used to be considered pretty good until this century, when we had bad years in 2000 and 2008. But the belief here is that for the first two years, the president focuses on policy priorities, but then does all he could do to juice the economy in the second two years, so he or his party will get reelected. And you know, there might be something to that. 
But it doesn't mean you shouldn't invest during the first two years. Historically, the market still makes money, just not as much. So I'm going to give this one four broken mirrors, partially due to the data and partially because we're about to enter the third year of a presidency. And frankly, I think we could use a little optimism about investing right now. In fact, according to Ryan Dietrich of the Carson Group, the stock market has posted a positive return in the year following every midterm election since World War II. And let's hope that history repeats itself. And we started the show by talking about the October effect, which is also known as the Mark Twain theory, since he said, October, this is one of the peculiarly dangerous months to speculate in stocks. The others are July, January, September, April, November, May, March, June, December, August, and February. As long-term investors at The Motley Fool, we agree. It's always a dangerous time to speculate in stocks. Instead, hold through all the moons, all the Friday the 13th, and all the Super Bowls, because long-term, bottoms-up investing is something you can believe in. Before we go, we have a mailbag episode coming up on November 15, and we need your questions to fill it. So send us your personal finance-related questions to podcasts at fool.com, and we might answer it on the show. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.